Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Wow, that was great, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good to see you. Would you turn to someone near you? Just smile at them and say, that was great. Would you do that? That was great. We're glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to take a journey this morning in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, as we've been in a series called Because of You, it's talking about how to live a life that lasts beyond ourselves. It's an enduring life, an eternal life. We've talked about the impact of prayer as our first week we talked about the eternal legacy of prayer. And then we talked about generosity and what it means to be generous in spirit. Last week we actually we talked about because you made a choice and, and how important it is to make a spiritual decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And today we want to go on a little different journey as we talk about because you cared. All throughout Scripture, specifically in the, in the Gospels, Jesus is called a man of compassion. And I, I, the, my working definition over the years has just simply been this, is that compassion is being moved inwardly enough to actually do something externally or outward. It's, it's not just simply looking at a situation and saying, oh my goodness, that's bad. But it's looking at a situation and saying, I have to do something about that. And Jesus was constantly the one who had to do something about it. He'd see the crowds and he'd say he was filled with compassion and so he'd begin to speak. He'd see the crowd being hungry. He was filled with compassion. He had to make some bread and some fish and, and provide for them food. He saw an individual who was blind and he was moved with compassion and he had to heal that individual. And today we want to talk about being a person of compassion as uh, Jesus discusses with, uh, with us what it means to be a good neighbor. Now, if we're going to talk about neighbors, if, you're, if you were a child anywhere from 1968 to 2001 and probably even till today, you likely learned a little bit about being a neighbor from this guy we're going to watch right now. Blast from the past. together we might as well say would you be mine could you be mine won't you be my neighbor won't you please won't, won't you please please, please, please won't, won't you be, be my neighbor. neighbor hello neighbors good to see you this morning you've ever tried to put on shoes in front of uh, by the way Fred Rogers never had socks that rocked like those. Those, those are good ones. But oh, and I didn't own a cardigan. I had to uh, rush it through Amazon. I went out to the mailbox this morning, so if it looks a little, little frumpled, 
too bad. That's the best I got. So anyway, take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to talk about what it means to be a neighbor. And Jesus, as he's answering and speaking into the life of those, I want you to see something. Jesus, Jesus is giving us another story, and it is a story from the Son of God that is intended to make specific points. But I also want you to see that what he is talking about here, he says is an eternal reality. This is an eternal issue, so we ought to pay attention to it. And it says in chapter 10 of Luke, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law came and stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love, your neighbor is yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Basically, he's trying to take something that is a, a huge concept, and he's trying to become legalistic about it and to become technical. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this is, a really, this is just a story, but it is a story that everybody could immediately put themselves into. It'd be like me saying, uh, I was on 696 yesterday and I hit traffic. Well, if you've been on 696, more than likely you've been in traffic. It, this would be like going to the north side of town and going to Walmart, right? Because most of us have gone to the north side of town and we've hit Walmart. This is a story that immediately everybody connects to because Jerusalem to Jericho is a path. In fact, it's called, it's actually given a name in, in Jeremiah. It's called the, 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 the path of Adullam, or which means the bloody path. Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is around 1,000 feet below sea level. So over the course of seven miles, you have a 4,000-foot descent. It is perilous. It is steep. It is rocky. It's got cliffs. It's got caves. And what is about to happen happens all the time because that's what happens on this path. And it says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he fell into the hands of robbers... And they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, who by the way is the epitome of virtue and knows the law backwards and forwards and tries to live perfectly according to the law, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, who were the working class, kind of the gophers of the priesthood, these are the individuals that were in charge of taking care of the elements of worship, making sure things were cleaned after sacrifice. In the Old Testament, moving the tabernacle from place to place, setting it up, taking it down. The Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and he passed by on the other side too. But a Samaritan who is hated by Jewish people because he's seen as an impure half-blood part Jewish and part whatever. He's considered the mutt among all of the Jews, and they are treated with disdain, and because of that, they treat Jews with disdain. The Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, 
Then he took the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn to take care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins. He gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses that you have. Now, that's my word. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this is a passage that over the last um, four years, I've had the privilege, either here at Colonial Woods or in other churches or in camp meetings, to at least preach four different times. It has become for me one of the most impactful personal, challenging parables or stories that Jesus told. And I will tell you that this has been my journey. I believe it should be all of our journeys, but specifically God has been applying this passage into my life. Because what I find when I look at this passage is Jesus never gives excuses for not showing compassion, and yet many times in our life that's exactly what happens. Now, I want us to understand something. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an evangelical Christian. It means that I believe that a person makes a decisive decision to walk with Jesus Christ in relationship, and that it's absolutely vital for a person to make that decision. That's why last week we talked about the eternal impact of choosing, because there is a choice that we make. Now, I realize sometimes that happens when you're younger. Sometimes it's when you're older. When you're older, it tends to be even more radical at times. But we, we all make a decision when it comes to Christ. But what happens over the course of time is that we become so minded toward the choosing and the spiritual that we forget that there is a physical aspect of our lives. And Jesus was so perfect at focusing on the spiritual and the eternal and yet balancing that with the physical and the needs of everyday people. And he always lived it perfectly. Now, that shouldn't shock us. He is the Son of God. He is Jesus. And yet, I'm always amazed at how perfectly in balance Jesus is able to keep those things in tune. And I find that oftentimes there are lies, and in fact, I think it's modeled in this passage, there are lies that we kind of tell ourselves. In fact, what they are is they're, 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 they're partial truths that turn into deceit, which turns into a lie, because that's what the enemy does, right? It, it, the most powerful deceit is one that has a little bit of truth to it. And these are the deceits and the lies that we tend to tell ourselves to avoid or to justify the lack of compassion in people's lives. The first one jumps out to me in this passage is the lie that's simply this. They made their choices. They made their choices, and the interpretation of that is simply this, is that they deserve what they get. Now, I want you to see something, because the man who is beaten, we never see a name, we really never see an identity, other than he's a man who is beaten, half naked, and he's laying on the side of the road. The only thing we know is that he's where he's not supposed to be. Everybody knows that this is a road where people get, get, get robbed. Everybody knows there's certain times... Everybody knows this is not where you want to be. And so there's a, a little bit, as you look at this whole thing, is that, hey, listen, if you weren't in the wrong place at the wrong time, if you weren't where you weren't supposed to be, you wouldn't be in the situation that you're in. 
And sometimes that's kind of how we look at people. We, we look at people who have, who have problems, ailments, they have addictions, they, have, they, they perhaps are homeless. They, we look at individuals who we would look at as kind of like messy individuals in life, and we think to ourselves, you know, I wonder, yes, we care, but they've kind of made their bed. Now they have to lie in it. Now I happen to love living in the United States, and I, by the way, love our country. And I, I actually, I love, I love that American dream. I love the dream that if you work really hard, take risks, step out, that you can take really nothing and turn into something. I, I really do love that. I, I love kind of the whole story of the pilgrims coming across. I love all of that. I, I really do. And I, I really appreciate that. But I do think sometimes the very thing that I love also becomes an excuse because we then begin to assume that if a person doesn't have that reality in their life, they're just getting with their choices. They just didn't make the right choices. They just didn't work really hard enough. I've always taken really pride that if you just work harder and you, you work longer hours. When I was self-employed, I loved this. You just work harder, faster. You make more pro. I just love that. And then we begin to apply that everyone who doesn't, they must have made poor choices. Or they're getting the fruit of their poor choices. They are where they are. If you, if you get in a car, you're a drunk driver, you're getting the fruit of your choices. If you get into a relationship you shouldn't be in, you're getting the fruit of your choices. And I don't know about you, but the Lord struck me with this this morning when I was going over the notes. I am so glad that I did not get the logical fruit of all the choices in my life. Any of you ever made choices that could have gone really bad and you didn't get the logical fruit? Any of you ever do that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a lot of them. And I learned something. Not every person who's half naked half dead, lying on the side of the road, wants to be half naked, half dead, and lying on the side of the road. Not every homeless person wants to be a homeless person. Not every person in a, in a, in a country where there is a, a dictatorship wants to be in a country with a dictatorship. I realize not every person who, not every person who is ill wants to be ill. I realize not every person who's an addict wants to be an addict. Sometimes we tell ourselves they've made their choices. They really are getting what they deserve. Last week I, I said something to you, um, and I could tell that we always feel uncomfortable when we say this, but I, I shared that in this room we are likely, every single family, every single family, we are likely in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. And that by definition we are wealthy individuals. And I'm guessing that a good majority are sitting in here going, yeah, but that's not my story. And so I did a little bit of research, and a number of years ago, I went to uh, Mali. I remember when I went to Mali in Africa. I think Pastor Ann, you were on that trip. We were there together. I learned that their annual income per capita was around three or $400 per year. But that's changed. They've become much wealthier as a nation. Today, in Mali, the average household income per capita is $1,500 a year. In Malawi, which is where we have so many partnerships, their 
per capita income is $1,180 per year. Half of the people in Malawi live below the international poverty line. So I was intrigued. I wanted to find out what the international poverty line is. I, I know roughly what it is in the United States. Anybody want to take a, a guess at what the international standard of poverty is, what the poverty line is in the world? Anybody know? Yell it out. A dollar twenty-five a day. That is the standard of poverty in the world. I'm taking a stab in the dark. Most of us do better than that. And I know what we're thinking, because I think this too. Yeah, but you know what? Things are so cheap there. It's so much cheaper. Um, it, that's not the truth. That's not the case. Now, there's some things that are less expensive. There are things you can't. And by the way, transportation is a lot cheaper in Malawi because half the people are on bikes. So it's a lot cheaper, right? But if you want to buy gas or any of that, it's all more than what we pay here if you, if you happen. Now, and now, this isn't to make us feel bad. I just want to help you understand that tremendous, tremendous blessing that God has given to us. And sometimes we're not moved in compassion because there's a little bit of us that has that pharisaical attitude. You kind of deserve it. You kind of deserve it. Number two, there's a second lie that jumps out of this passage. And it's interesting. It's, uh, it's not my responsibility. Or, or, what my, or what I'll say is someone else will take care of it, right? Uh, somebody else will take care of it. It's not my responsibility. Now, there were three main characters in this passage, right? There was the priest, and the priest is the virtue of all the Jewish people. He knows the law, lives the law, but his job is to help other people come into communion with God. And so to help some guy who's on the side of the road, not my job. Or as my wife likes to say, not my monkeys, not my circus. Is that what you say? I think that's what it is. Not my monkeys, not my circus, right? That's not, that's not my thing to have to deal with. I don't have to deal with everything. So the Levite, you think, okay, this guy's the gopher, right? He's the doer, but this is a guy who has other responsibilities because his responsibility is for the temple. And so we, we oftentimes get into this very, very tunnel vision look is that, hey, that's really not my role. That's really, by the way, you know what my, one of my pet peeves is? I've got like a million of them. One of my pet peeves is when there's trash on the floor and everybody walks by it and doesn't pick it up because it's not their job. That drives me crazy. Pick it up. It just needs to be done, right? And so I'm always amazed at those people who go out of their way to do what really is not their responsibility. About 12 years ago, this is, this, I mean, this is, it was one of the most strong, it was one of the most powerful moves of the Holy Spirit just speaking in my heart. The Holy Spirit told me on a Saturday night, he said, you have to go down and you have to make sure your dad knows what it means to be a believer in Christ. My dad had always gone to church, but I just didn't know where he was spiritually. And so on a Saturday night, the Holy Spirit just said, if you don't, I mean, it was so strong that if I didn't listen to him, I knew that I'd be grieving the Spirit of God. The next morning, I told my, I made a deal, by the way. I made a deal with God. I said, Lord, if you will please let me just get through the services on Sunday, then I promise that I will go down first thing on Monday morning, and I will meet with my dad, and I will talk about spiritual things. 
And so uh, I told my prayer group on Sunday morning, I said, guys, you've got to hold me accountable for this. And so Monday morning, first thing, I get in my truck, I head down I-69, and I'm going to Imlay City, and I look down after driving about four or five minutes, and I look down. It never occurred to me to look at my gas tank, my gauge. And I looked, and I was like right hovering just above E. And I'm like, oh, man. And I don't know how many of you are like me, but I'm really driven. Uh, and so it really bothers me when you start a trip and then you stop within 10 minutes. That just frustrates me. And it's all about making time. And, and I was on a mission, right? And uh, so I looked at it and I said, okay, I'm not going to, I can justify stopping if I stop at Imlay City because sometimes I will stop for a cup of coffee at Tim Hortons in Imlay City. And I thought, if I can get to Imlay City, um, I can justify stopping at the BP station, filling up with gas, because I'm really stopping for coffee. So that's kind of, kind of what I told myself. And so I made it to Emily City. Almost. And I was like two miles away from the Emily City uh, exit, and, and the, oof, everything goes dead, and the, car, and the truck starts to coast, and I'm sitting there in disbelief thinking, you can't, I cannot believe I couldn't make it, what, 30 miles. I can't believe I was that low on gas. And I don't, have you ever, any of you ever done this where you put it into neutral and then you like, you try to do this and try to get a little bit more? I was just trying to get everything out of that thing I could. And so I pulled over to the side of the road and I get, and what do you do? I didn't have a, I didn't even have a gas can with me. And uh, I'm like, what, what do you do? You get out and you walk. And so I got out and started walking and it was about, it was about a mile and a half to two miles from the exit. And I probably wasn't 200 um, yards from the truck when I saw a, a tr another guy pulled in front of me, backed up, and he said, you out of gas? And I said, yeah. And he goes, um, would you like a ride? And I'm like, thank you. That would be awesome. So he takes me to the BP station. I go to the BP station, and um, I, the, only, the only can they had was a yellow diesel can. And so I went out, and I put gas in it. And I already know what all the Pharisees here are going. You're not supposed to put gas in a diesel container. Shame on you, Pastor. It's the only thing I had. Did you heal that man on a Sabbath? So I fill up this thing, and um, the guy hung around. He said, hey, would you like a ride back? Yes. Thank you. And he drove me back, and he went beyond it so he could turn around and come back. And uh, he said, uh, I tried to offer him some money. He wouldn't take it. And I was humbled by a couple of things. Uh, number one, that somebody that quickly stopped and cared. The guys, guys and gals that stop along the side of the road, I'm just, I'm just always floored by that. But the, the second one that hit me was that I don't think I would have been one to stop. I was on a mission. I had things to do. God had me on a different mission, and so to bypass that was something that really wasn't my responsibility, somebody else to take care of it. I told you this has been a journey that I've been on for quite some time because I pride myself in being very driven. I pride myself in being 
a person who's a leader takes charge. But the finer honing of the Holy Spirit over the last decade in my life has been to slow down long enough to see people who are on the side of the road that are beaten and half dead. And sometimes we buy into the little lie that it's not my responsibility. Somebody else will do it. Sometimes we say it's their choice. They kind of are getting what they deserve. Number three, sometimes we just say, I don't have the time. Which really is, is saying that I have more important things to do. And by the way, the case could have definitely been made in this passage, right? The priest had more important things to do. The Levite had more important things to do. In fact, um, if you are a person who's built a little bit like me, there, there are different personalities who tend to be very task-driven. Um, those who tend to be perfectionists tend to be very task-driven. They, they like things done correctly. Those who want to get things done expeditiously, they also tend to be very task-driven. I am, I am of that sort. I am, a, I am a type A personality in some of the old tests. I'm a high D personality on the disc profile. I am in the old um, uh, Gary Smalley profile list. I am definitely a lion. That's just, I'm built that way, especially when I'm working. Now, I'm also, I like to have fun, but not when I'm working. I like to have fun when, you, when you're working. It's time to get these things done. Just wondering real quickly, how many of you tend to be very task-oriented? You either want to get things done right, or you want to get them done quickly. Any of you? Yeah, okay, that's you. Yeah, right. So you know this is, this is for us. Because we don't have time for this stuff. And we justify it by the things in our life that need to be done. So the person next door, right, we want to win the world, but the neighbor next door, I don't know his name, right? Um, I, I don't have time to go to the nursing home. I don't have time to sit with that person. I don't have time to call my family member. I don't have time to, it's, this is not about the investment of finances. This is the investment of our lives, which we see as the most com precious commodity of who we are. I don't have time to talk to this person about Christ. I don't have time to meet their physical need. I don't have time to take them a meal. I have more important things to do. There was actually a study done on this back in 1973. The name of the study actually was called, it was a paper written in Princeton, Princeton University. It was, uh, it was called From Jerusalem to Jericho. There were two sociologists, actually professors at, uh, at uh, Princeton, that wanted to, they wanted to take this this, this parable, and they wanted to um, test it. And they had a theory. They had a theory on the impact of uh, your, your, your busyness in life and your theological beliefs on altruism. In other words, the more you thought about religious things and the, and the more time you had, the more, the, the more generous you were in helping people who were in need. And so they chose seminary students from Princeton University, and they, uh, they divided them into two groups, and then they divided them into three groups. They wanted to test both those theories. So what they did is they had half of the seminary students, they told all of them that they were going to do a little bit of a presentation for three to five minutes. And they were going to speak, half of them were going to speak on what does it mean to be a minister, okay? The other half, they asked them the same question, they said, what does it mean to be a minister? But they had to use the story of the Good Samaritan in their presentation. Then they took all of them and they divided them into three groups. And they told them one of three things. 
they told all of them, we don't have room for your presentations here. You are going to be speaking in the lecture hall across the campus in the other building. To a third of them, they looked at them and said, now it's not time for you yet, but why don't you go ahead and head over there so that you're ready when they're ready for you. Okay? You're not very urgent. Then a third of them, they told them, they're ready for you, go ahead and head over. And then for a third of them, they looked at them and said, oh my goodness, they were ready for you a few minutes ago, you need to make your way over there. And then they hired an actor to provide a crisis. And what he did is he collapsed outside of the lecture hall that they were going to be speaking at, and he would be somewhat comatose, but he would cough and make noises so they knew he wasn't dead. And um, interesting what they found. They found, number one, what you believed theologically and what you were focusing on religiously made no difference whatsoever. It didn't matter if you were getting ready. In fact, some of the students, some of the students who were speaking about the Good Samaritan, literally, because people weren't stopping to help this guy, so he actually put himself on the sidewalk in front of the building. They literally stepped over him to go inside and do a presentation on the Good Samaritan. But guess what the number one factor was? They rated him on, they rated him on a scale of one to six. One being is that they didn't see them and didn't pay any attention to them. Three, uh, three on the scale was um, they stopped to say, hey, are you okay? Do you need help? The six, there were some people who refused to leave um, until help came. They, they called for help, and until that help came, they wouldn't leave the person's side. Number one factor, busyness. The individuals who were rushed, the individuals who perceived that they didn't have time, they were the ones who rushed by and didn't see the need. You know, they made their choice. They're kind of getting what they asked for. You know, um, that's not really my responsibility. I got a lot to do. I'm busy. Number four, it's just going to cost too much. Which means I really just don't want to get messy, right? Now I want you to see, I want you to see how the Samaritan responds. But a Samaritan, the one who is despised likely by the very person he's going to help. The Samaritan as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Which means what? He saw him. If you're going to have a heart of compassion, I don't care if it's for the elderly, for the person next door, or for the person, you've got to see them as people. This is my self-confession today. How many of you have ever seen 
one of those commercials on TV where they have all the dogs in cages and stuff and the animals there. Okay, how many have you seen the commercial? How many of you turn to another station when that's on? I do. How many of you have seen the Compassion International one with all the little kids? I'm not going to ask you if you turn the station, but how many of you have a hard time watching that one? And I get it, because we're evangelicals for the most part in this room, right? We believe that there is a spiritual decision that must be made, and so that drives us. When I was rescued, rescued by a decision, a decisive moment, God rescued me out of legalism. And it wasn't that my church was legalistic, it's that I just caught it. We catch legalism when we... When, a, when one generation sees people who are followers of Christ, we just naturally assume that they're close to Christ because of what they do. And so I was kind of driven by that, but when you're rescued out of that legalism and you realize it's by His grace that we're saved, there's a part of you that just wants everybody to know about that, and so you focus your life on that, but Jesus was this, I said it earlier, I'm going to say it one more time, He was the perfect master of meeting the most important need in a person's life, that is their spiritual condition, and I will emphasize that because Jesus emphasized that. He said, what good will it be for you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? He said the soul is the most important aspect, but He never used that as an excuse to bypass the felt need in a person's life. In fact, he always utilized the felt need to reach the spiritual. Does that make sense? Nobody said yes at all. I didn't see a single head go up and down. Does that make sense, right? That, that felt needs were used by Christ to meet into the spiritual needs of people. So he saw him, had compassion on him, he engaged him, he bandaged him. I love this because in order to bandage an individual, it's not like you're walking around with a little trauma kit, a little first aid kit. Likely he's using his own shirt, he's using his own clothing. And I'm not really into blood, and yet you're going to get messy when you start working with people that are in messy conditions. It says that he lavished healing on him by what? He poured oil and wine, or oil and wine. Oil which supples the skin, wine that meets an antiseptic for a wound. He carries the man on his own donkey. He takes him to an inn where he cares for him at least until the next day. Because verse 35 says he didn't leave till the next day. And then I love this one. He gives the... He gives the, uh, the he gives the inn owner two silver coins, which studies show is enough to buy 30 to 45 nights in their hotel. I'm not sure what hotels you stay in. Some of you stay in $40, $50. Some of you stay in $200. Some of you probably $100. Let's just say $100. $100 for a hotel. Comfort in. Forty-five days at a hundred bucks a day. That's the equivalent of what he did. And then he leaves an open tab and says, Hey, any I'll be back. Anything that goes over the bill, I'll take care of when I get back. 
Now, some of us will go in debt for our own stuff, but not many of us will go in debt for other people. And Jesus said, so which one is the neighbor? That's one of the reasons that um, in our strategic partnerships this year that we really have put a high priority of partnering with people around this community and around the world who minister to the spiritual but also minister to the felt. Sparrow Ministry Center uh, is a pregnancy care center here locally, and it's one thing to say that you're pro-life. It's another thing to give options to the person who's battling that decision. It's one thing to say that you're against sex trafficking. I'm going to guess most of us are. It's another thing to partner with War International Women at Risk and actually engage, in which a number of families in our church are not just financially involved, but they are personally involved in being down at the bus stop and getting involved when crisis hits. This is a reality that our local law officials, as well as down in Detroit, they have, they have in the last three years come alive recognizing what a crisis that is just in our area. We know it's real around the world. We know it's real around the world. This, this is real stuff here. When we talk about Hope Village, Hope, and, Hope Endeavors, we specifically have worked in an orphanage in Malawi. It's one thing to talk about the need of orphan children. It's another thing to come alongside and provide for them. And over and over, the Feed the Hungry project here locally, the Blue Water uh, Food Project, where we work with uh, Rima International in Haiti, trying to uh, build physical needs, working with an organization that deals with um, medical needs in order to reach spiritual needs. Um, I'm so excited about this uh, this partnership with um, Compassion International. I hope you'll, or uh, with, um, uh, with World Vision. I'm so excited about the partnership with them on this well drilling project, uh, project called WASHED. And I hope you'll take advantage next week when they're here and they have the virtual reality station. Um, the reason I'm so excited is that they meet hygiene and, and water needs in people's lives. But what I love is they give them the discipleship tools necessary to care for their spiritual needs as well. And like I said, this is my journey. But I would say this, Christ invites all of us to be on this journey. There was an old leadership anthem 20 years ago we used to say all the time, is that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I gotta believe that there's a world out there that doesn't really care how much we know about Jesus until they know how much we care about them. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up and um, as we close, I wanna read one other passage of scripture that over the last um, three years, God has, God has really impacted me with and that's in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus is giving his teachings about what things are going to be like in the end times when God brings about the culmination of history and he comes for his church. And Jesus, the Son of God, said this, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory 
and the angels come with him. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we even see you as a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go and visit you? And the king replied, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who were cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick, in prison, you did not look after me. And they'll answer the Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger? Or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison? And we didn't help you. And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And I cannot read that passage and escape two undeniable truths. Jesus said that whatever you do for others, the least of these you're doing for him. And whatever I don't, I didn't for him. And so, Father, I uh, thank you that you have taken me on a journey that Holy Spirit I'm still a work in process but part of looking like Jesus is caring enough inwardly to actually do something outwardly and I'm so grateful that there are so many choices in my life that I, I probably didn't get what I deserved And Lord, you're going to have to teach me how to balance this and know exactly how to do this. And so the best way I know how is, Holy Spirit, I just simply want to be a, a person that is open, that when you prompt me, I want to listen. And you're teaching me to slow down enough to see not just the person on the side of the road, but the person on the side of the hallway that just needs an arm around them. person in the store who just needs a word of encouragement 
neighbor next door who just needs kindness. A nephew that I've seen make too many choices that frustrate me. An uncle, a family member that just frustrate the daylights out of me, but you're calling me to be compassion in action. Lord, I am in a position where you've asked me to lead a church. And so as such, it's completely appropriate for me to pray that as a church, that Lord, you continue to lead and direct and develop in us a heart that just looks like you. Don't allow me to justify anymore that as you enable me, I act and show Christ into my world. Thanks, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living.